This is The Rounds Table. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Rounds Table. I am Christopher Giuliano, one of the rotating hosts on The Rounds Table. And today we are fortunate to have Insef Mohammed. Insef is a ambulatory care clinical pharmacist in internal medicine. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Today, our episode is going to be called Slow Motion. The first article we are going to look at is evaluating magnesium in the treatment of AFib with rapid ventricular rate, or RVR. That's the slow part of slow motion. And the second article is actually going to be looking at fall risk with trazodone in patients with insomnia, and that is the motion part. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. The first article that we're going to look at is by Buida and colleagues in February in Academic Emergency Medicine. And this study was titled Low-Dose Magnesium Sulfate Versus High-Dose in the Early Management of Rapid AFib. And it was a randomized double-blinded study. Their abbreviation for the study was the Low-Mag-High study. So Chris, what is the bottom line or main message for this article? So this double-blind RCT of 460 patients actually found a 20.5% absolute improvement in meeting their goal ventricular rate. And they were shooting for a rate of less than 90 or a 20% decrease in baseline. And that equated to about a decrease in absolute value of 40 on the heart rate. And they had three different arms. They had a 4.5 gram magnesium sulfate arm, a 9 gram arm, and a placebo arm. So why did you choose this article personally, or why is this article important in the broader context of our existing knowledge? Well, AFib is the most common cardiac arrhythmia, so I feel like I see it all the time in the hospital. And when they're in RVR, this can be very difficult to manage. A lot of times we're having to add on multiple agents. And so having more agents is helpful and having additional options when trying to get these patients under control, I think is important, especially because some of the agents you may not be able to use if their blood pressure is too low. What was the design of the study and where did it take place? So it was a randomized control trial in three emergency rooms in Tunisia. And if you don't know where that is, that's actually in Northern Africa. I had to um, look that up. Thanks for sharing, Chris. Who were the patients in the study? So they were adult patients greater than 18, and they were admitted to the emergency room with AFib with RVR. They had to have an initial heart rate greater than 120. And they excluded patients with low systolic pressure less than 90, if uh, they had impaired consciousness, if they were in acute renal failure or they had a serum creatinine greater than two, they had an acute heart attack or heart failure, or they had other rhythm disturbances other than atrial fibrillation. And they enrolled 469 patients and only 19 were excluded. And this was mostly because they withdrew consent. So the overall demographics, the average patient was around 67, 60% female, and they had a lot of common comorbidities that you'll see with many of our patients like heart failure, hypertension, and diabetes. And interestingly, the average heart rate 
into the study was 137, so pretty rapid. Digoxin was the most commonly used AV nodal blocker, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along, followed by diltiazem and beta blockers. I would say that we use more diltiazem and beta blockers in the hospital. What was the intervention in this study? So the intervention was magnesium nine grams or four and a half grams or placebo. And it's important to note that all three of these were given over 30 minutes. So they were given pretty quick. And what were the primary outcomes and any important secondary outcomes? The primary outcome was ventricular control at four hours. And how they defined that was a heart rate less than 90 or a 20% decrease from baseline, which was about a decrease on average of 40 from where they had started. Remember, they started at 137. And they actually had to maintain this for 24 hours to have met the primary outcome. They did have a few secondary outcomes. They looked at the time to response, the amount that converted to normal sinus rhythm, adverse events, and the secondary outcomes were measured up to 24 hours. And what were the main findings of the study? So the magnesium 4.5 gram actually came out on top, and that had a difference in 20% from the placebo, whereas the 9 gram dose only had a 15% difference. And the resolution of the RVR was actually faster in the 4.5 gram group, and it had the most conversion to sinus rhythm. At 24 hours, the outcome was achieved in 23% in the four and a half gram group and 10.7% placebo. And the highest amount of adverse effects were in the nine gram group, which makes sense. Because you're giving such a high dose over a short period of time, you're gonna likely gonna get some side effects from magnesium and these ones that are common ones that you'll think about when you give magnesium quickly, such as flushing was the most common. Um, they did have some hypotension and bradycardia, but they were very small numbers and they weren't different between the groups, but the study wasn't really powered to detect the difference in adverse effects. And so the number needed to treat with the four and a half gram dose was actually five. So you need to treat five patients to achieve their outcome once. Are there any interesting points or observations you wanted to make about this study or anything that just caught your eye? So although absolute differences were reported, they did not report the actual percent that occurred in each group for the primary outcome. So if there was a difference in 20%, was it from 30 to 10 or from 90 to 70? that could really affect how I interpret this. And I feel like the reason they didn't report it is because these percentages were low. And I feel like that was largely because of the heavy over-reliance on digoxin, which I would consider one of the probably least effective rate control strategies in a patient with RVR. As I said before, we commonly use diltiazem or beta blockers as first line. They also didn't really report the doses of the other agents being used. So if they were on digoxin, how much digoxin did they get? Or diltiazem or a beta blocker. 
Patients with concomitant heart attacks or heart failure exacerbations and low blood pressure were also excluded, which could limit some of the generalizability of the study. All right, well, let's transition right into any important limitations of the study that you haven't discussed yet. One thing is that a goal heart rate of 90 is somewhat aggressive. Um, Most guidelines recommend shooting for a heart rate less than 110. And that may also be why at 24 hours, only a low percent achieved success. So why don't you summarize your take on the balance of strengths and weaknesses in this study? I believe the data does show some benefit to using magnesium. And I think if you're gonna do this, the 4.5 gram dose is more effective. I would not use the nine grams over 30 minutes. That seems to lead to a lot of adverse effects. Now, this isn't gonna be the first thing that you start. You're gonna wanna use one of your first line agents to control heart rate. But if you need to, magnesium may be another option that you go to. And the study also agrees with prior studies that have looked at magnesium in patients with AFib, with RBR. Now, the use of magnesium may be less efficacious potentially for patients with beta blockers and diltiazem, but we really don't know how the efficacy would differ. So why don't you summarize for us your main learning point of the article, and also, will this affect your practice in this area? Yeah, so magnesium has an effect on decreasing heart rate in patients with AFib and RBR. And after using first-line agents to control this, I would consider potentially adding magnesium if I'm running out of options. I'm gonna also be more aware of the heart rate lowering effects of magnesium, but I'm somewhat curious if this depends on the rate of magnesium infusion. So let's now jump into the second article published by Bronskill and colleagues in October 2018 in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. And the title of this article is Low-Dose Trazodone, Benzodiazepines, and Fall-Risk Injuries in Nursing Homes, a Match Cohort Study. So in soft, what is the bottom line for this article? This was a retrospective matched cohort study that evaluated the risk of fall-related hospitalization in nursing home patients newly prescribed low-dose trazodone or benzodiazepines. The study found that low-dose trazodone was no safer with respect to fall-related injury than new benzo use with a cumulative incidence of 5.7% versus 6% respectively. So why did you choose this article? What makes it important to you? So managing insomnia is especially challenging in older adults, especially as I see in clinic, particularly due to the disadvantageous side effects and risks associated with common sleep aids such as C-hypnotics. Benzos pose many risks to elderly patients with their use being scrutinized for insomnia and other conditions such as anxiety. Trazodone is generally perceived as a relatively safer alternative for off-label use in insomnia. However, there has really been little evidence in the literature prior to this study evaluating the safety of trazodone compared to benzos. And so, I guess to start off, does trazodone work in the first place? That's a great question. And, you know, it's hard to say. Um, There's not a lot of evidence to suggest that it does. And, And so that's also a point of discussion that we probably need to have. Okay, great. So what was the design of the study and where did it take place? 
This was a retrospective cohort study of nursing home patients using an administrative database in Ontario, Canada. And who were the patients? So this study included nursing home patients who were over the age of 66 with new low-dose trazodone or new benzos prescribed within seven days of the assessment date. They did exclude patients who had no drug use in the year prior to the assessment date, patients who were comatose and were completely bedbound or patients receiving palliative care. There was a total of 9,615 new low-dose trazodone users and 10,642 new benzo users with propensity score matching including 7,791 patients in the low-dose trazodone user group as well as the new benzo user group. Okay, so they used propensity matching to try to match patients similar to each other. Exactly. And after that matching, the average age was 84, 64% were female, 48 were considered frail using a frailty index, 48% required extensive assistance with activities of daily living, 36 were prescribed a concurrent antipsychotic medication, about 40% were prescribed a concurrent antidepressant, 22% were on a concurrent opioid, so you can see that there's a lot of other medications that these patients were on. 47% of patients actually had had a fall in the past 180 days, and 53% had an ED or hospitalization for a fall-related injury in the past five years. Okay, it sounds like very high-risk patients. So what was the exposure evaluated in the study? So exposure in this study was new low-dose trazodone or new benzo use. And what was the primary outcome? The primary outcome was fall-related emergency department visits or acute care hospitalization within 90 days after the index date. There was also a secondary outcome, which was fall-related ED visits or uh, hospitalization but also with a diagnosis of hip or wrist fracture within 90 days after the index date. Okay. And so what was the main findings of this study? The cumulative incidence of fall-related ED or acute care hospitalization within 90 days of prescription of either medication was 5.7% for low-dose trazodone and 6% for benzos. The difference was not significant between the two groups, The hazard ratio was 0.95 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.83 to 1.08. There was also no significant association in any stratified analysis, and there was also no difference in the secondary outcome between groups. Differences in risk between men and women, frail and not frail, and those with and without a history of dementia were not significant. Interesting. So was there any interesting points or observations that you wanted to make about the study? So interestingly, a random sample of assessed residents by the investigators with no history of either drug had a slightly lower risk of falls, 4.1%, compared to the present study cohort, but they didn't lay this data in the study. Also, they only looked at falls requiring hospitalization or emergency department visits. And if you work with older adults, you know that sometimes we also see patients come into the office reporting a fall. Um, They didn't report on that. Therefore, we may have underestimated the extent of fall-related injuries in this study. So what I'm hearing is that um, patients on trazodone were around 6% falls. 
and then the patients on benzos were around 6% falls when they were matched together. And then patients that weren't on anything at all was around 4%. Exactly. And then another interesting point is that this study did only include nursing home patients. So we don't really know about any general community dwelling elderly patients. Okay. Are there any important limitations of the study we haven't discussed? Yeah, so actually the median dose of benzos was low in this study, which might also account for this finding of no difference. Perhaps if the doses of benzos were higher, such as those that we see in practice, we may have seen that there was a difference in that fall risk. This study also did not comment on the other risks associated with benzos, such as dependence, risk of withdrawal, and impaired cognition, which do not generally accompany trazodone use. Okay, so summarize your take on the balance of strengths and weaknesses. So I believe that this study implies we should employ greater vigilance related to off-label use of trazodone for insomnia, but it is unclear if we can use a blanket statement to suggest that trazodone is just as risky as benzos in terms of fall risk or from a global perspective due to the study limitation. However, we should still exercise caution in the use of trazodone. It is not benign. No difference in this study also does not suggest equivalent fall risk between trazodone and benzos. Additional comparative studies with a control group would be beneficial to help us come to a conclusion here. All right, so what was your main learning point of the article? Low-dose trazodone is no safer with respect to fall-related injuries than benzos for insomnia and nursing home patients based on this article. And how is this going to affect your practice? It is difficult to extrapolate these findings to community-dwelling older adults, such as the ones I see in clinic, and of course to younger patients too, who we do see using trazodone for insomnia. However, this study highlights the importance of avoiding the perception that trazodone is simply safer than benzos. We should exercise caution, educate patients currently managed on trazodone for sleep, and be mindful of prescribing new trazodone for patients who have other risk factors for falls. All right, so we can't use benzos, we can't use trazodone, so what other options are out there? That's a great question, Chris, and I think we are always having that question on our mind. We know that cognitive behavioral therapy is the first line. We know that sleep hygiene is the first line. The problem is that it is difficult to convince a patient that these things will work, and it's also difficult to find healthcare professionals who we can refer patients to for things like cognitive behavioral therapy. Although we are learning that these are things we can do in a primary care office without a specialist. It's just things that we need to invest some time in. Hey there, Roundtable listeners. It's Kieran Quinn joining you for a special segment this week. As you know, I'm very passionate about palliative care and I am extremely excited to welcome Dr. Ahmed Jakda. Dr. Jakda is a family physician who specializes in palliative care. Now, this guy knows what he's talking about. He completed his residency at Ohio State University, an additional fellowship in palliative care at the James Cancer Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He holds board certifications with the American Board of Family Medicine, Canadian College of Family Physicians, and the American Board of Hospice Palliative Medicine. Dr. Jackta has also served as the regional palliative care lead for the Waterloo Wellington Lynn for six years, which is one of the health regions in Ontario. But in addition to this clinical practice, he is now currently the provincial clinical co-lead at the Ontario Palliative Care Network. We are very lucky to have Dr. Jackta with us this morning. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jackta. 
Thank you, Kieran. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me and uh, making some time for uh, this conversation. Well, most of our listeners know that how strongly I feel about palliative care. So we're extremely lucky to have you talk to us more about some of the great work that you've been leading in Ontario. To lead it off, can you tell us just a little bit about what exactly is the Ontario Palliative Care Network? And why is it so important in a larger organization and delivery of palliative care across the region of Ontario? Yeah, that's a great question. So for many years now, we've understood that palliative care is an area of service delivery that's underserved. Patients aren't receiving the care that they need at the right time as well. And most patients, unfortunately, in Ontario have continued to see their last days being spent within the hospital. Now, palliative care can be started very early, but at the same time, most of the time we see it being provided towards the end of a person's life when, in fact, it might be a little bit too late to develop a relationship and provide a quality of life. So in 2016, the Ontario government developed the Ontario Palliative Care Network, and it's basically a network of community stakeholders, health service providers, and system planners. And we have a number of clinical leads within the areas of Ontario that help with local change and promoting the palliative care agenda. And our desire is to essentially close that gap and to raise the profile of good palliative care being provided early to patients who require it. So we're really seeing an organization at the level of the government being able to help deliver standardized and high quality palliative care across the province as opposed to having individual centers and regions doing it on their own. Is that sort of the idea? Yeah, and I want to emphasize the fact that the word network is very much critical to this organization. While it's ministry funded, I would say it's not ministry run. The idea being that there are a number of organizations, including colleges of professions, advocacy organizations, uh, perspectives from patient and caregivers, regional and local planners, and especially primary care foundation that looks to shape the agenda. And so without that partnership and network, we really can't do our job. And so it's really a collective approach towards moving the agenda forward. Forward. And tell me, Dr. Jackta, on that note, with all of these hardworking individuals and organizations, what kind of work does the network actually do? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we do is we focus on a number of things, but in order to be leading this from a provincial perspective, first of all, our mandate is to meet the requirements that have been placed upon us by the ministry. And, and part of that means being a principal advisor to the government for quality coordinated hospice palliative care in the province. We also look to emphasize quality initiatives. And a big piece of what we did was put numbers and performance measures within palliative care so that we could see how particular regions are performing and what we do is we measure that using administrative data and we send that out to the region so that they can see how they're performing relative to their peers in different regions as well in addition to this recently we've put together a delivery framework which promotes coordinated integrative care within a patient's journey within palliative care itself and so that allows patients and their families to receive a high level of quality care and so this model what it does is it allows us to promote earlier identification at the time of diagnosis focus on family's wishes through the patient's journey and making sure that the care is culturally sensitive we emphasize the idea of 24-hour seven-day access to seamless care for patients with a care coordinator who is necessary in order to provide adequate care and an approach that's holistic towards patient care. And then of course, having clear rules for providers to understand what they contribute towards the team. And so this whole idea is laid out in our plan and hopefully we'll see some traction going forward. So I think one of the challenges that we see when these very important frameworks and recommendations come out is actually how to implement them into practice. 
And how would you say the OPCN is supporting the implementation of this health services delivery framework? You know, over the many years, there's been a number of excellent documents that have come out from Ontario and elsewhere as well that speak to the importance of implementing a strategy for palliative care. And oftentimes that there's a missing piece between the production of that set of recommendations and actual application in terms of implementation. So the question is a good one because we do want to see the, this delivery framework applied and to actually have impact on patients and their caregivers. So we've provided the document itself, which is available on our website. Uh, the other thing we did was we put together an expert panel for early identification of patients within palliative care. The idea being that if people have tools and the ability to try to implement these in a systematic way within their care settings, then hopefully we can identify patients earlier and then it's easier for them to then begin to put in place the appropriate resources and care coordination. Yeah, I mean, that's really great to see. And and I got to say for our listeners out there, I've seen a lot of these, actually, I've seen all of these documents that are very well done. They're very nicely laid out, easy to read. So we'll point you to the OPCN website where you can find them all on the podcast blog. So Dr. Jack, I imagine I'm a practicing clinician or a healthcare provider out there and I'm, you know, I'm interested now in palliative care, what can I do or what can other healthcare providers do to help advance this important crusade about advancing palliative care and improving end-of-life care for patients? So I think clinicians, and especially at the primary care level, have a critical role to play. And we believe that every practitioner, whether you're a specialist physician or a primary care physician or a nurse practitioner or a nurse, et cetera, should have a basic foundation in, in palliative care principles. And a major document that we also came up with accompanying the ones I've already mentioned is our Ontario Palliative Care Competency Framework, which essentially lays out what the basic principles that everybody should have in order to provide adequate palliative care. So what I would say is physicians and others should definitely try to recognize uh, where they sit in that spectrum. And so do you feel comfortable having a goals of care discussion? Do you feel comfortable treating a basic level of symptom management, including pain? Do you understand how to approach a conversation and reach out to your specialists and reach out to resources within the community to provide a palliative care that's well-coordinated? All of those things are critical for patients to receive from their providers. And we know that one of the biggest strengths in providing excellent care, not just within palliative care, but elsewhere, is also the need to have solid relationships with their clinical team. And often that sits at the primary care level. So starting with that, I think, is probably the most important thing to take that mantle upon yourself. Look for opportunities within your local regions. Many of the regions have palliative care networks where coordination happens and use that along with the tools that we develop to start the conversation and move your team forward. Well, that's really great. I mean, a huge congratulations to yourself and all of these individuals who have poured literally thousands, if not more hours into creating all of these helpful resources. And by the way, although a lot of them have an Ontario flavor to them, I really encourage if you're interested in expanding your palliative care across your own health region, even if it's outside of Ontario, there's a lot of really excellent pearls and important pieces of resources and information in these documents that can apply beyond Ontario. So I really do encourage you to go and check them out. Dr. Jacta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate you spending the time to take us through some of the important work that we're doing here in Ontario to expand palliative care. And hopefully we can have you back on the show sometime soon. Thank you, Karen. It's been great. And I also want to thank you for the invitation. And also, uh, you've been a big part of the process in developing these things. And so your expertise and your support has been critical for our success. And I appreciate that. All right, back to the show. Thank you. 
All right, let's go ahead and move on to our favorite part of the show, the good stuff segment, where we're talking about what we're reading about. And recently, I read an article in the New England Journal of Medicine talking about a new drug delivery device called Soma. And this is a pill that is swallowed and then actually injects drugs into the intestine. And why this is interesting is because we can give drugs that can be only given intravenously, orally. They have done some preliminary studies with pigs in nature. Um, This is very, very preliminary, but I'm excited to see where this goes in the future. The needles are actually very small, so they don't perforate the intestines. And the needles, I thought was interesting. They were actually made out of a type of sugar so that they dissolve. So I've been doing a lot of reading on a lot of the challenges with the new opioid guidelines, for example, from the CDC. I've been working a lot in clinic with my team to figure out how do we best wean patients off of opioids when they indeed need to or get them to the lowest effective dose. We know there's a lot of challenges with this in the literature, for example, with things such as complex persistent dependence that we have to overcome. But I actually found it quite interesting that on April 9th, the FDA put out a warning against abrupt discontinuation of opioids, reporting serious harm on dependent patients who suddenly stopped taking the medication or rapidly decreased the dose. They cite harms such as serious withdrawal symptoms, uncontrolled pain, psychological distress, and suicide even. So this is something we should really be mindful of in the management and monitoring of long-term opioid therapy. I think in this epidemic that we're in, we are sometimes under the mentality that getting patients off of opioids is the greatest outcome and we have good intentions there, but it looks like there are some risks because our patients are using opioids to manage perhaps underlying mental health conditions. And we remove that and we put these patients in serious harm, for example. So I thought it was quite interesting that the FDA was commenting on this and perhaps increasing awareness so that we can all do a little bit better in managing these patients. All right. So the pendulum starts to swing back in the other direction. Fascinating. Indeed it does. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Have a good night. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.